My guest this week is Charles Elton, the author of a very fine and engaging new book called Chimino, The Deer Hunter, Heaven's Gate, and the Price of a Vision, which is out now from Abrams Books. This book is the first biography of the mysterious, legendary, and controversial film director Michael Cimino, whose 1978 Vietnam film The Deer Hunter was nominated for nine Academy Awards and won five, including Best Picture and Best Director. It was, incidentally, Cimino's second ever feature film as a director. Cimino infamously next directed Heaven's Gate, a film widely regarded in its time as an egotistical directorial flop of such epic proportions that it supposedly brought down the very studio which produced it, United Artists, one of the most storied entities in Hollywood history. Charles's book sheds some much-needed light, revealing that the truth, as ever in Hollywood mythmaking, is both more complicated and more prosaic than previously thought. In his previous life, Charles Elton has worked as a designer and editor in publishing before becoming a director of the Curtis Brown Literary Agency. And more recently, Charles spent more than 20 years working in television in the UK, eventually becoming an executive producer for drama at ITV. Among his productions were the 2000 adaptation of Edith Nesbitt's classic children's book, The Railway Children, Andrew Davies' adaptation of Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, and the 2007 miniseries, The Time of Your Life, co-starring Olivia Coleman. Charles is also the author of two novels, both set in and around the world of show business, Mr. Toppet and The Songs, both of which involve untangling the emotionally constricted strains of lives lived in and around the entertainment industry. Charles, welcome to what certainly must be the crowning glory of your career in broadcasting, which is appearing on the American film podcast, Full Casting Crew. Delighted. Now, reading your bio, these ITV projects you're involved with, your novels, I was struck that all to one degree or another involve these mysterious aspects of kind of naughty family complexities and thorny issues of identity and aspiration butting up against societal and family convention. In other words, it turns out that you have the perfect background to do the Michael Cimino book. Well, I mean, you know, you write, I never really planned to write the novels I did, or rather I didn't know they would turn out that way. And what I discovered is that what interests me is identity. I didn't really know that until I wrote the books. And of course, with the Chimino book, it's a it's like a trilogy about identity, my two novels and that. And I've always been fascinated by it, the different personae people put on, what they hide, what they show. And doing the Chimino book, because it's not really like a conventional biography. I don't know it's that unconventional, but, you know, it, it, it's a kind of journey for me to try to understand him. And it's actually like writing a novel. It was like really like writing a novel. It was so full of weird characters, including Chim Chimino. Yeah, I was going to say, I think your, um, your book is such a great mystery also. It's a great Hollywood mystery. I don't want to spoil it for listeners because yeah. I really want them to get the book. And the book starts in a very tantalizing fashion with you visiting Chimino's ex-home and, and then sort of going from there and unraveling what you did. What I was struck by, I want to talk a little bit just about Chimino's background before we get into some of the, the two major films and some of the other tidbits of your book. But I was really struck reading your book that really within the first several pages of Chimino's life, we're presented with our first issue of obfuscation of identity. Because we say Chimino, 
and I saw people post this on Twitter, said, do you say Semino or Chimino? That's kind of the first mystery we have here where he starts to perhaps fudge yeah. a little bit the details. Yeah. Tell me a little bit yeah. about his, his, uh, his upbringing and his name. Well, he, he was, the family was called Semino, and he changed the pronunciation. I, it just built a tiny riff between Semino and Chimino. He was like second, I don't actually even know, second or third generation Italian. I mean, his parents had, had, had grown up in America, so I'm not sure when the family came over. They lived in Brooklyn until Chimino was about 10 or 11. And then I think like a lot of people were doing in the 50s, when the suburbs in America suddenly became invented, they moved to Westbury on Long Island, because I guess in the 50s, Long Island was leafier, safer, the schools were better, all the conventional reasons for moving. His father was a music publisher. His mother was a seamstress who specialised in um, wedding dresses. Uh, he had two younger brothers. And on the surface, it looks like an utterly conventional upbringing. There are a lot of Italians in Westbury, but the Chiminos, they didn't speak Italian at home. So they were kind of assimilated. And indeed, Chimino never really spoke Italian at all. I mean, not saying he should have done, but I think a lot of, I bet Francis Ford Coppola speaks good Italian. So it, it was on the surface, an utterly normal upbringing. He went, to, he went to Westbury High School. It was a small town. He had friends. He was on the wrestling team. Utterly conventional family. Out of that completely conventional family, he created something completely different. I mean, clearly, he was kind of the cuckoo in the nest. I mean, he was obviously different in his aspirations and expectations from the rest of his family. What's interesting is, even as a young man, even at the early stages of his career, as you delineate in your book, and even as he begins to work in Hollywood, and even as he has success in Hollywood, he's one of those interesting people who had the chops and the talent to be extraordinarily successful, but he also had the, the, the drive and the overconfidence of the untalented, if you know what I mean, like working in television and movies, right? I think that's a very good, I think that, yeah, I think that's a very good point. Don't you see a lot of people who want it? They, they, they want a life in show business yeah, so badly, yeah. but they just don't have the talent to make that life for themselves. But he has this bizarre combination of overdrive, which actually I think worked against him yeah. uh, throughout his filmmaking career. I'm like you, when I read a biography that starts with like the parents coming over on a boat or something, I skip yeah. ahead. If it's a filmmaking <laughs> biography, I skip ahead until the part where they start exactly. to make a movie that I'm, that I'm curious yeah, yeah, about. So, yeah, so yeah. thank you for doing that in your book and starting it the way that you did. The myth-making that he really seemed to engage in throughout his entire life begins at that young age but he is a success, right? He goes to university. He goes to Yale University. He also has kind of this fascinating combination, I think, of snobbery on one hand, yet also kind of a dedication, at least in The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate, 
to being truthful to the lives of the children of immigrants and working class people. He was obsessed with immigrants and class. He was absolutely obsessed with kind of smart, posh, titled people. Um, but he did have that empathy with particularly immigrants. I mean, obviously, in the deer hunter, they're all immigrants. They're maybe second generation. Ditto um, the year of the dragon, Chinese immigrants. That's what kind of makes him fascinating to me is that on the one hand, he spends really a tremendous amount of energy covering up his background, uh, almost being embarrassed by his background, embellishing his background, both positively and negatively. Like he's embellishing it on the sense that he would like us to think he's a princeling to the manor born. But he's also also at times embellishing it to say that he really understands what it is to be, you know, poor or working class or... He wants it all different ways, which is kind of this just fascinating conundrum about him, especially as you get through his life and he begins to physically change himself, which is another part of your story that we'll get to. But do you think that your sense of the man after going through this journey that you went through and talking to so many people involved with his filmmaking and his personal life, do you think he was a self-hating person at core? No, that's a very interesting question. I, I think, I think at some level, and particularly to do with the gender thing, I, I think he did to some extent. You know, he hated being five foot six. No, so I think there were a lot of. I think he clearly didn't like his physical appearance, but he didn't do anything about it until much, much later. So I think, I think, I don't think, I don't, I don't, I think he believed in his talent. I mean, and of course he was incredibly talented, but there are lots of people who are insecure about their talent. I don't Mm. think he was insecure about his talent for one moment, Mm. but I think he was insecure about himself as a person rather than a filmmaker. In his career as a filmmaker, so he started out and he was working pretty soon after he returned to the New York City area from college. He starts working in advertising, which he later obfuscated and called industrials and documentaries, which is another fascinating tidbit, right? Exactly, exactly. Because because commercials, they weren't anything to do with movies in those days. They were all shot in New York. And being, and though he became quickly a very successful, allegedly the highest paid commercials director, which he got in about five, six, seven years, and have you seen any of his commercials? No, I haven't. Look them up. You'll get you can get them on YouTube. If you put Michael Cimino commercials, I think okay. two come up. And there's another one which he isn't credited for, which is Anne Margaret doing a Canada Dry commercial. So if you put Anne Margaret Canada Dry, that'll come up. So I found three. And they are extraordinary. I mean, they are they're like little films. Mm. And technically, they're incredible, absolutely incredible. I think people people thought that because he was so successful in commercials, it was easy to get into Hollywood, not at all. Mm. And he he had to really work at it. And he wrote Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. He had written a movie in New York called Silent Running, but he goes to Hollywood and he writes a script for Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood buys it, and Chimino says, you, you can't buy it unless I direct it. But Clint Eastwood is, is very instinctive, and he has often backed talent 
just because he believes in them. And Clint Eastwood, you know, when he took Cimino on, and he gave him a bit of a test by getting him to write the second half of Magnum Force, the sequel to Dirty Harry, because John Milius had been writing it. He got offered a movie of his own to direct, which was called Dillinger with Warren Oates. And so the screenplay was half finished and Cimino didn't really want to, but was Clint Eastwood asked him to do it. And then the, the next movie was Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And Cimino knew that Clint Eastwood would sack him. <laughs> if he didn't want to do it, if he, if, he, if he was slow or late or over budget or whatever, Clint Eastwood, which, I mean, Clint Eastwood movies are never over budget. Right. They're tightly controlled. Clint Eastwood have, would have sacked him, maybe directed it himself. I mean, he sacked a famous director, Phil Kaufman, of the outlaw J.C. Wales, and just did it himself. So Chimino knew that he had to behave himself. And curiously, despite obviously not having final cut and not having control over the movie in the sense that he had later, um, he got on really well with Clint Eastwood. And it, there was no budget problems. It came in on time. Um, he didn't do too many takes. And it was a very, very happy experience for him. And as he said, you know, his girlfriend, for want of a better word, um, you know, said you'll never have such a good experience on, on a movie again, and he didn't. And you know what's interesting? I think if you really look at his the the output of Chimino as a director, you could really make an argument that Thunderbolt and Lightfoot is is I'm not going to say his best movie, but it's the most tightly constructed film that still contains all of the DNA that you're going to see in Deer Hunter and in Heaven's Gate and other work. the The beautiful photography of the American West. Uh, idiosyncratic camera movement, character development, the use of non-actors. It's a really good movie. It's it's absolutely one. It's wonderful. It's probably my favorite Jimmy yeah. movie. It's like a perfect, it's perfect, even though it wasn't a kind of an auteur movie. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting, you know, he never considered himself really much of a writer and as I say in the book, he had endless collaborators who he didn't ever acknowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and somebody who had worked with him said they doubted he actually wrote Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, that he'd got mm -hmm. somebody in. Because actually, I mean, I don't know whether that's true or not, but if but Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, you know, is a kind of genre piece. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, as I say in the book, if you look at the dialogue on the page, it's kind of cheesy mm -hmm. and it's like it, it it it's very kind of down home mm -hmm. in the vernacular. I mean, where Chimino got the vernacular from, God knows, but he did or somebody else did. Mm. But actually, when he makes the film, it just works. And you know what's fascinating about the writer relationship in your book is the only writers Chimino ever gives appropriate credit and praise to are the already famous ones that he collaborated with. If you were a, if you were a writer that didn't have credits, yeah. then he viewed you. Now again, I don't think he's alone in this in Hollywood. I no, think no, no, a, no, 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 no. So a lot of times to give Chimino his due, um, you know, there's a lot of things that he came to be blamed for or have attached to his name that really much like Harvey Weinstein, 
Many, yeah. many other people in Hollywood are guilty of these and worse yeah. crimes of attribution, lack of yeah. attribution, True. behavior, what, what have you. People become kind of poster boys or punching bags for certain types of behavior, yeah. and that gets attached to them. And in fact, I think you can see in their psychology, they're kind of aware that like, well, wait a minute, I'm not the only person who does this. But he does yeah. have a very criminal history almost of uh, really discarding with previous writers, as you say, maybe yeah. people who had a lot more to do with the tightness of scripts than, than he did. You're right. He liked the famous writers he worked with, Raymond Carver, Gore Vidal, Oliver Stone. Um, he'd rather discarded all the others. But one of, one of the things I wanted to do in the book, and it helped that I know about movie production because I've done it. One of the one of the things that sort of that's that, that I wanted to do, and one of my objections to Stephen Bach's book, which you know I'll say up front is a fabulous read. It's okay. Gossipy. So just for the for the listeners who may not know, you're, what you're referring to is Stephen Bach was one of two production executives for United Artists on Heaven's Gate. And he wrote one of the more famous books about a Hollywood disaster, which is called Final Cut, which is a book that pur purports to be about the inside story of the making of Heaven's Gate. And it's a very worthwhile read. But to your point, it has been criticized for, of course, being somewhat self-serving because it's his perspective and he deflects a bit of blame, perhaps. He, he does. I mean, which isn't to say it isn't a fabulous book. It's like you'll never eat lunch in this town again. It's yes. sort of gossipy. It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, my phone. It's no really... problem. That's what editing's for. Where was I? Oh, yes. So Stephen Mott wasn't that experienced, nor was David Field, his equal, his other production executive. But the way Stephen Bach describes it, he's an unreliable narrator. He describes the things that happened on Heaven's Gate as if it was a surprise that mm. these extraordinary things could happen. Anybody who knows about movies, there is no movie made that doesn't have endless arguments about the budget before going into production. Battles, rows between directors, producers, it happens all the time. And directors, in quotes, behaving badly. I mean, try working with Eric von Stroheim, <laughs> David Lean, and I try mm -hmm. to put in a context, and I'm not excusing Tremino's behaviour, all I'm saying is that everybody else did it as well. I know that doesn't excuse it, but he wasn't alone. And I don't understand why people are disappointed that great artists aren't nice people. I mean, I'm sure Picasso wasn't a nice person, not that I ever met him. You know, they're not nice people necessarily. And as somebody who producer said to me, if you want a good experience on a movie, hire a Sunday school teacher to direct <laughs> it. You know, that's what directors are like. And that's certainly what Tremino was like. I'm sorry, there's a great line in your book I wanted to quote, which is, uh, you write, one of the central conflicts of the movie business is that the studio wants a director with a vision and then complains about how costly that vision is. Yes, of course. And that's it course. in a nutshell right there, yeah, right? Yeah. And I think that even in Stephen Bach's book, and this, you know, maybe this comes from the advertising world, which to me, in my limited engagement with it and experience of it, coming as I do out of cable television, you know, we are forced to work in a world where cost constraints are paramount sure. at all times. Sure. When I've done commercials 
you're kind of like, you can't believe that somehow this structure has been allowed to exist where these people can charge this much money for yeah. stuff we could do for one tenth of the cost. Yeah. But that's yeah. just the world that it is. And I think that if you're in that world, it may breed a certain amount of contempt for the client. And in this sense, like the the agency that's paying the money for the for the commercials that say yeah. Chimino came up directing. Now, in, in, in all of Chimino's filmmaking, and really in New Hollywood in general, right, there's... There's a, there's a paradigm shift that's going on that I think to understand the context, you have to understand that previous to that, right, we had the studio system where there really was no cost overrun because yeah. directors are just doing a day job and working for a number of weeks and then moving on to another project yeah. and don't have the option per se to pick and choose what they're going to work on, nor do the actors. Then when we get into the new Hollywood era, all of a sudden the rules are being changed. A new type of filmmaking is emerging and the auteur, the, the, the person who has a vision, and Hollywood is trying to figure this out at the same time as it's helping to transform their business yeah, and save yeah. their business. And a lot of these growing pains, I think, are ev evidenced in books like uh, Final Cut or you know, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again or the other famous kind of film books. Easy, easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which is really the best, honestly, the best book about Hollywood ever. It's, it's great. He, he's a great, he is, he is a trustworthy narrator. I would yes, say. he is. He is. He hates, he hates Chimino. Oh, he does. He, as Stephen Bach's book shows, even if he doesn't say it himself, it's really the fault of United Artists. It's really not Chimino's fault. Yes, absolutely. Chimino is just doing what he does. You know, I mean, the studio had no guardrails on this guy and they're the ones who have no idea how to rein him in. No. And that's what studios are meant to do. And they put... <laughs> You know, the, 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 the Chimino's associate, Joanne Corelli, produced it. She'd never <laughs> yes. produced anything before. Right. And I was always amazed that they didn't insist on having a proper producer working alongside her. But the production manager, the line producer, was a guy called Charlie Oaken, who had been the production manager on Chimino's commercials. Joanne Corelli was his girlfriend. So there were no checks and balances. You know, the, she essentially was working to Chimino and producers don't work to directors. They're meant to be, I mean, they, they have to enable a director, but they are not the director and they're not always on the director's side because they can't be. And, you know, when you, when you look at... Um, the experience of Heaven's Gate, which in your book, I think you do a great job resetting the narrative and the history, because yeah, especially yeah. now we live in a time when, you know, truth is so flexible. So your book, I think, does a really great job resetting this narrative. If people don't know anything about Chimino or about Heaven's Gate, what do they think they know? He bankrupted a studio. Well, no, yeah. uh, the studio was going through an interesting transition itself and this film just got caught right in the middle before they learned how to have had measures in place to properly yeah. produce films that's right in that sense i think your book does a great job in sort of alleviating some of the other types of disaster director stories that we've heard to your point yeah. in the book he's it's not a disharmonious set even on heaven's gate no, that was that was the interesting thing that everybody believed that he he had gone mad. He was Colonel Kurtz, yeah, and he had just gone mad. But when I went to Kalispell, one of the advantages 
that I had writing the book was that I had no idea how you write a biography. And I had that thing called unencumbered by knowledge. I didn't mean I didn't know about <laughs> movies, but I didn't know how you write a biography. So I, I didn't have that thing, oh, you can't do it that way because they tried it and it didn't work. I just was completely very so Everybody said, why are you going to Kalispell? It was 40 years ago. And actually, I had the best, best time in Kalispell. And there I discovered that everybody had a wonderful time on the movie. <laughs> Chilino was warm as far as he was ever warm, but he was relaxed. He was enjoying doing it at his pace, whatever it cost. And, you know, directors... It's called Making the Day, which is you have the, the call sheet with the shoot, the stuff you're going to do that day. And if you don't get to the end of it, because some directors are slow or whatever, it moves on to the next day. So you get a kind of domino effect. Chimino, it wasn't that he didn't finish the day. He wasn't trying to finish the day. Mm. Whatever it said... He knew a particular scene, because technically he was brilliant, he knew a particular scene was going to take him two days to shoot. And that's how long it took. So he mm-hmm. wasn't slow. I mean, he was, I mean, he was slow, but he wasn't slow to himself. He did it, he knew exactly what he was doing, but he did have to have somebody behind him picking up the enormous bill. Mm. But everybody loved working on Heaven's Gate. Not towards the end when it all got a bit more difficult, but um everybody loved it. Yeah. And he's working harder in your book. Many people say this, that he's, he's the hardest working person on his sets. Absolutely. He's working before breakfast. He's working after dinner. People are partying in the bar. He is still going and working. And so it's not a case of someone who didn't want, didn't know what he was doing or didn't put the work in. Now we could say, and Heaven's Gate is its own interesting kind of test case because it is a monument to his will in the sense that he got everything he wanted in this, in this production from a studio that didn't know how to say yeah. no to him and didn't know how to protect himself against it. And in getting everything that he wanted, and, and I'm sure you, you've had this experience too, working in the, the businesses I do, I believe the greatest creative product often comes from the creative tension between the suits and the creatives. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, if you let the creatives do whatever the hell they want, you can end up with Heaven's Gate. If you let the suits do whatever they want, you end up with some bizarre soulless thing that doesn't work. You have to have both. Now, Chimino's error, as far as I can see in reading about him, is that he had absolute contempt for the business side of the industry. And he was megalomaniacal in his pursuit of his vision. And to his own detriment, and this is where we should introduce Joan Corelli a little bit in her role in his life because it's such a fascinating through line. And you were able to, to find her and talk to her. She's such a reluctant witness all these years later for everybody that encounters her and talks to her about Chimino. She's a fierce protector of his legacy. And I don't know if she's saving it for her own book or what, but uh, how, tell me a little bit about how they met and what her role was in his, in his personal and film life. I mean, for those, sorry, I should have preface this by saying that Joanne and Shamina were together for 50 years. She was totally part of his life. In They didn't, when he moved, she hates LA. So she lived in, they had adjoining flats, apartments in New York and adjoining houses in East Hampton on the beach. They were thick as thieves, as we say in England. And it's very hard to unpick what their 
the dynamic was between them. I'm quite, she obviously enabled him. He was totally beholden to her. People felt that his career would have gone better without her because she was such, she was the gatekeeper. And people resented the fact that you could never telephone to me, you know, you had to go through her. If you could even get her on the phone, she's very, very elusive. They met in probably 68. And she was, um, she was two years younger than him, but she was rather a dynamic agent representing commercials directors. She didn't actually represent him. And, you know, it's shrouded in mystery because she won't talk about it. So I picked up things from other people who knew them. She was always a formidable presence. And believe me, if you ever meet her, she is a really formidable presence. And they became, it's what the French call a folie à deux. You know what I mean? Two people who come together and become much more than the sum of their parts. I imagine like Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying those names as if I've ever read them, which I haven't. (laughs) But you know what I mean? They're sort of power. They're a power couple. Mm -hmm. And she, she is an extraordinary person. She was interviewed a bit when Heaven's Gate came out because she was the producer. So mm-hmm. she gave a couple of, only I can only ever find two of them. She has never been interviewed since, but she is like a character in a novel. She runs through the book. And I freely admit that she didn't actually tell me that much. <laughs> and I remember the first time I met her, I was in, it was in New York, and we, we arranged to have dinner. And I was going to L.A. the next day and I changed my flight to find to to, to the day after, because I in a sort of ridiculous, innocent way, I thought, you know, I'll have dinner with her. She'll see I'm a good guy and I'll charm her and she'll say, what about tomorrow? We'll go to a hotel room and you bring a tape recorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not. (laughs) And I was wrong. I spent a long time with her. And actually, she is the most mesmerizing person. Hmm. She is just so, I mean, I I grew really fond of her. She is very hard to understand. And I think one of the criticisms you could make of the book, or I can make of the book, is that finally, it's about somebody unknowable and you never get to know him. I mean, I tried to make Mm -hmm. that like something good in the book. But, you know, I can see people might feel that they don't understand him, but that's because he's not understandable. Well, I think they'd be missing out if they thought that. I recently you know, went down another wormhole for another episode of the podcast. We were doing the American TV series Taxi. And of course, we had to. Oh, I love taxi. And we had to go far down the wormhole of Andy Kaufman, another Long Island boy, made good from uh, middle class upbringing, interestingly, and and an apparently very stable family who also obfuscated his origins and his life, and someone who played fast and loose with the truth. But you know, Bill Zeme wrote a book about Andy Kaufman, which is is similar in the sense that. He's an unknowable person. He didn't leave behind a deep archive of materials that we yeah, can yeah. suss in order to find the person behind the public persona. And similarly with Chimino, I think you mentioned in the book, there's 
there are some papers that pertain to his life and career. The, there, there may be from other people's archives that you, you can access, but it's not like he has a, a, a home filled with, you know, correspondence no. that you can parse. Well, he did have a home filled with correspondence. <laughs> but you just but can't parse it. Parse it. <laughs> it was fascinating that there is no archive. There is nothing. at the You know, when you read movie biographies, in the acknowledgements, it always says, and I have a very, very deep debt to the Margaret <laughs> Herrick Library, where, and they name 15 people who were so helpful, mm-hmm. and I was there for months. Uh, I went to the Margaret Herrick Archive for an afternoon, I mean, and people, obviously some people have left their papers there, but even Sam Peckinpah, who then did leave his papers to the Herrick Library, they measure everything by the foot, which is like a foot mm-hmm. of boxes. Sam Peckinpah has 40 feet mm. of boxes. Chimino has a draft of Heaven's Gate, maybe a couple of drafts of The Deer Hunter, a couple of letters from other people. That's it. Mm. And, of course, in his house, which is part of the mystery that I kind of set up at the beginning, what lies behind the walls of this house? You know, he lived there for 40, since 72, Mm. 30, 40, 45 years, say. Um, Everything must be there. Everything must be in the house. And, you know, but Joanne, I mean, I don't blame her, was certainly not about to let me go to the house. And, you know, like, you know, I was, I, I was saying, well, Joanne, you know, maybe I could help you sort the papers mm. out. No. <laughs> um, so that was why the book took the shape it did, mm. which was relying on people, because there was nothing else to rely on, um, and why it's sort of like a novel where you meet all these weird characters and God knows the People around Chimino, like the friends and stuff, were always just so weird and interesting. Mm. And so they, it's like a kind of weird cast of characters, all of them unreliable narrators, because mm-hmm. of the people I talked to, which is about 80, 90 people, there were three types. There was the ones who told me the truth, the ones who lied, and the ones who thought they were telling me the truth, but it wasn't necessarily the truth. I don't really say what I believe is the truth. I mean, I do say what I believe is the truth about the bankrupting of United Artists. But generally, I sometimes, it's like Rashomon, you know, I sometimes present these stories. Mm -hmm. Make your own mind up. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I think that's the strength of the book, because if you had taken a position, uh, I think the book would be lesser. I think it's a braver choice to say... This is what I found on my journey. You you figure it out as a reader. I, I like yeah, that challenge. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, that challenge. Yeah, yeah. I also really liked how many people, and I I just since I love show business and I love this aspect of show business, I was particularly glad to sort of encounter it in your book. There's many, many times where we're introduced to someone in the making of Deer Hunter, someone in the making of Heaven's Gate, a producer who's got to be 80, 90 plus years old. And you or a studio and you find them yeah. and you have lunch or you have a meal with them in Los Angeles and they're still working. You have a couple yes. of people in the book. I you're like, that. you're like, they, they still have an office. I, I can't remember if it was Irvin Winkler or someone else. Someone who's like 92 years old who still goes into an office. Irwin uh, Winkler is 90, still producing. It's he, amazing. Uh, he's, he's a lovely guy. Al Ruddy, who produced The Godfather, yeah. he's 90 something. He trails around Los Angeles with two assistants. <laughs> It's amazing. I love it. I love, I love it. they all keep on working. 
Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the deer hunter. I'm almost think I'm going to do a whole other episode about the deer hunter just because in preparation for this, in addition to reading your book and reading Stephen Bach's book and uh, watching the films, uh, I did go on a bit of a jag with the Vietnam films of this era and taking a look again at the deer hunter, at Apocalypse Now, and at Full Metal Jacket as the three, I think, most sort of important and influential films about the Vietnam War, oh. leaving out, of course, things like Coming Home, Platoon, other important films. But to me, those are the three films by three filmmakers of kind of titanic importance yeah. within Hollywood. And you know what's interesting? And I want to hear your, your opinion about this. When I screen them all again, I, like many people, before I rescreened them, would have said, well, Apocalypse Now is the greatest film about the Vietnam War. That's the biggest piece of art that is made about the Vietnam War. That's, that's got to be the number one film. And indeed, when I put this on Instagram or Twitter, that's what most people say. Now, when I watched all of the films again, I surprised myself by gravitating much, much closer to The Deer Hunter as a story about and by human beings where war is just something that happened to them. The Vietnam War could have been any war, and I think Chimino says this himself in a couple yeah, of places. Yeah. But it's a human, it's a humanistic film. Yeah. And as such, it speaks to me more than Apocalypse Now, which when viewed subsequent to The Deer Hunter, can feel a bit like a poem or a surrealist painting that tells exactly. us maybe something about war. But I have a sneaking suspicion, and I don't want to be uncharitable towards it, I have a sneaking suspicion it's a little easier to feel important and maybe swelled with import when it doesn't really yeah. make a lot of narrative sense because we yeah. then say that it must be doing all of these things that maybe it is yeah. or isn't doing. But it's interesting to me that, and I think maybe that's just because Francis is a more beloved figure. He's a more uh, concurrent through line. He still is relevant. Yeah. He still is someone yeah. that we talk about, the films. Uh, and even for all of his battles that he had, he still worked within the system smartly to get what he needed. Oh, completely. And he completely. didn't self-destruct the way Chimino did. No, no. So when you watch those films again, what's, what's your personal lineup of the, the th Vietnam War? Well, I do, I, I, do love, I do love Apocalypse Now, of course, but it's not a movie that's grounded in reality. It's sort of surreal. Mm -hmm. It isn't truthful. I don't mean, I don't, and that's not a criticism of it. It's not trying to be that. You know, I mean, Brando was Kurtz. It's not like a real character you're going to meet. <laughs> right. And Full Metal Jacket, it isn't that I don't like it, because I do. I never quite understood why Kubrick wanted to make it. I mean, technically, of course, it's wonderful. It didn't seem to me to bring anything to the party much. And, of course, the first section of it at the training camp is much the best bit of it. The moment they get to Vietnam, all constructed at a disused gas works in London, it doesn't seem to me to say anything about war or whatever. Though I, I mean, I don't mean I didn't like the film. And of course, The Deer Hunter was, if you look at the, the movies that ran up to The Deer Hunter about Vietnam, I mean, there were very few. There was The Green Berets, which is kind of laughably bad, which John Wayne directed. Uh, there's Boys and Company C, um, the Burt Lancaster Go Tell the Spartans, and Coming Home. And that's about it before The Deer Hunter. I mean, funny enough, I was just looking at Coming Home the other day, 
And it's much better than I remembered it being. I thought I sort of remembered it as being um, sentimental and this was more than, but actually I was, and I was, Jane Fonda is wonderful in it. Um, I think it's a very, very good film. It's completely different from The Deer Hunter. Um, And of course there were at the time of The Deer Hunter, other movies like Taxi Driver, um, because Travis Bickle was a Vietnam vet. Um, But you couldn't say that it was about Vietnam. Rolling Thunder, the Paul Schrader movie, again was about Vietnam vets, but it wasn't about Vietnam. So I think I think I, I think out of them, um, the Deer Hunter is the best Vietnam film because I wouldn't quite call the podcast now a Vietnam film; it's a something else film, mm-hmm. and I'm not criticising it. Then yeah. that's just not the ticket it's travelling on. And I think the Deer Hunter is kind of truthful, even though everybody pointed out the Russian roulette didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But I never quite understood why people minded that it's not a documentary you know it's a conceit yes i never understood the criticism about the russian mm. roulette thing but i think what i what i also rather amused me about the deer hunter is stylishly it managed to manage to offend both the pro-war <laughs> faction and the anti-war faction well that's how you know it's a really important work of art that's yes, doing its job yes. right yeah, you can yeah. be acute i mean yeah. he was always accused of being both incredibly left-leaning and a right-wing fascist at the same time, which I think is pretty pretty comically funny. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Even in fact, you know, I just last night I watched uh, I watched Year of the Dragon, which is such an 80s Oliver Stone, Chimino, spectacular mashup yeah, yeah. of weird proportions. But the filmmaking is there. I mean, his camera movement, uh, I oh, really plugged into that. That shootout, oh, it's the incredible. shootout in the Chinese restaurant. It's ridiculous. I think Mickey Rourke is terrible in it. <laughs> well, listen, let me defend him. He's he's perhaps thoroughly miscast, but he's doing yeah. his job within the context of the film. Like he's he's pulling off the job. Yes, he is. He is. But he's not the right actor. I mean, it was that it was that hat. <laughs> as I say in the book, did in the 80s detectives wear those kind of hats? I don't think. I don't know much about it. And the Chinese-American reporter is just... Oh, it's insane. I mean, the she, apartment like, is insane. Like, the, the idea that a local news reporter lives in a... Unbelievable. A duplex she is, <laughs> she is she She is, for me, the Chinese Ali McGraw. Yeah, it's I completely mean, she is ludicrous. so terrible. But... It's it's got a. I mean, it's the first film he made after Heaven's Gate, right? So yeah. it was five years yeah. later that he was allowed yeah. to work yeah. again, um, and he's working with Oliver Stone, who obviously is the type of writer that he would like to be affiliated yeah. with. Yeah. You know, when you mention the scripts, it strikes me throughout your book, you hear Chimino so many times on the record doing that thing, trumpeting his number of girlfriends, trumpeting the amount of times he's irresistible to women. And then you also hear him later in life talking about how many scripts there are in the house. All I do is write all day, every day. You have to wonder in the balance, both of those things can feel equally false and as if they are a put on in order to tell us something about him, which may or may not be true. When you look at the films of his that really work, I mean, The Deer Hunter to me is a film that works. It works straight through. It's a great script. It's brilliantly cast. And it's very assured. That's the one word I would use for a film that's as strange as it is. Oh, absolutely, it's very it's conf, it's confident. 
it's confident and and it has a a strange structure that you wouldn't think it's easy now to look at it and say it's a masterpiece the 50 minute wedding scene is a masterpiece yeah well in context at the time it's insane it it really makes no narrative sense to do that in a no. film but no, not at all his confidence to do that it speaks yeah. to the real talent that he yeah. had yeah. and it's amazing that it never happened again because if you look at heaven's gate it's not a great script no it's a very thin script yeah the filmmaking is astounding but it's not in service of a story and no. that's where it falls apart in its bagginess and its length i mean i just watched it again and there are shots there are complicated shots that are mind-boggling in their complexity. And when you think about yes. how he had to teach people to ride horses, to, to drive carriages, to shoot, to do all of the things that they had to teach them to do, to clothe them, uh, to have the sets be what they were. It is, it is, it's an incredible filmmaking accomplishment, yeah, but of yeah. course it doesn't really work. You can't really watch it and have an enjoyable no. experience because it's just too long, really. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, the script is thin mm. and it would have been it would have been better if he had brought somebody in, one of his mysterious collaborators, mm -hmm. to help him with it, because the script is thin. But of course, but 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 Cimino was he was brilliant in many ways. And like the wedding scene in The Deer Hunter, you can think of a million reasons why it's a mistake. Mm -hmm. It's too long. You don't. You just see some of our characters in there, but it's everything else. Mm -hmm. It's too long. It's boring. It's this. It's that. It's fabulous. Mm -hmm. He knew it would be just like hiring Isabelle Huppert, mm -hmm. which seemed crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's all in Stephen Bach's book, and I write about it. Yeah, uh, she is luminous, mm -hmm. and he knew that. He had those kind of instincts. Yeah, but it, but Heaven's Gate is a bit of a mess. But who cares? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and it's like when you say it's slow, and God knows it is slow, for me, it's the equivalent of reading a novel. Mm. It's discursive. It moves. Mm -hmm. And in, in that sense, for me, it's like Barry Lyndon. I mean, I think Kubrick was a better filmmaker than Chimino. But Barry Lyndon is long and boring mm -hmm. in a way. But it's a masterpiece, Barry Lyndon. Mm -hmm. It's discursive. You have to kind of buy into it in the same way you have to buy into Heaven's Gate or else you're not going to like it. You've got to accept that that's what it's like. But Barry Lyndon also arrives somewhere eventually. Yeah, well, that's true. And yes. I think so that I mean, Barry, Lyndon, Barry Lyndon is a total masterpiece. Yes, absolutely. You know, Kubrick, when you talked about um, Full Metal Jacket, which I just rewatched, it's it is almost feels like two different movies. When people think of that, I think they think of the first half of the movie, the Arlie Ermy, the basic training, yeah. which is brilliant. Yeah. To think that Arlie Arlie Ermy was only a consultant and then wasn't even supposed yes. to be in the movie is insane. I was impressed because now you know when you watch all these films back to back, you're looking at how did they film what we know is not Vietnam and where did they film it. So of course in Apocalypse yeah. Now you have the Philippines, uh, in the Deer Hunter uh, you have Thailand. And then, bizarrely and amazingly, and it works. In Full Metal Jacket, you have England you have standing, England. <laughs> which is insane. Now, the reason that he was able to pull yes. that off was because he went differently. He didn't go jungle like the other two films. He went yeah. urban. And, and yeah, because yeah. he could blow up those disused gasworks buildings yeah, and yeah. set them on fire, 
it has a visceral realness that is you can't do on a set in its own way, which I was really impressed by. But one of the things that Apocalypse Now is strikes me as so silly for all the money and the time that was spent. The gunfire and the explosions tend to just look like fireworks, which is what they are. You know, it's it's kind of like and maybe that's a, a choice a Francis choice, kind of like a one from the heart choice to be more yeah. theatrical. I'm not sure if that's a budget constraint, but like when the when the boat is is under attack, it's very clearly Roman yeah. candle fire. It's not, you know, bullet yeah. tracers. Now, I don't know if he couldn't afford that or that's just a, a production reality, but maybe that contributes to the sense of unreality that works in Apocalypse yes. Now's favor. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I thought Kubrick to... I, I saw palm trees and I thought, what? I had to look it up. And of course, he, of course, imported 200 palm trees, which is why they start to yes. look a little threadbare throughout the battle scenes <laughs> as they're replanting them from time to time. Yeah. But it's, a, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's uh, yeah. such three different films. You have to, I had a friend of mine said, you, you know, Apocalypse Now and Deer Hunter, they're two sides of the same coin. You, you kind of can't have one without the other and you really need both. Yeah. Actually, the, the other Vietnam movie that nobody ever mentions a Vietnam movie um, is De Palma's Casualties of War, which I think is a great movie. I haven't seen that. Oh, you should look at it. I haven't it's seen a Vietnam that. movie, but nobody ever puts it in mm. with the other Vietnam movies. I think it's wonderful. Who's in that? Technically, of course, like all Brian De Palma's films, it's totally <laughs> bonkers. Amazing. You know, the sets, <laughs> right. you know, the, the camera moves, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got Sean Penn and Michael J. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. All right, I'll have to watch that. I will add that to my to my screening yeah. list. One thing that we do on the pod a lot is alternative casting. Put that one back. Tell me a little bit about the alternative casting for The Deer Hunter, because I found this kind of fascinating. Well, as I say in the book, directors have this thing that they offer the script to the person they want to do it. And of course, the actor they want to do it says yes instantly. Whereas in truth... Almost no movie you've ever seen has the cast that was originally intended. You know, Tom Selleck was going to be Harrison Ford in the Indiana Jones movies. John Travolta was going to be Richard Gere in American Gigolo. And I think John Travolta might have been meant to be Richard Gere in An Officer and a Gentleman. But with Erwin Winkler puts it really well, it's in the book, but I can't now remember it that because of, you know, actors' chronic insecurity, not enough money, the wrong dates, the whatever, there's nearly always somebody else who ends up in the movie, like um, Boogie Nights was meant mm-hmm. to be Leonardo DiCaprio and it was Mark Wahlberg. And, of course, on Deer Hunter, it was meant to be Roy Scheider playing Robert De Niro, um, which would have been a terrible, terrible mistake. The <laughs> studio wanted wanted Roy Scheider because it does John Jaws. And Shemina knew perfectly well they didn't want Roy Scheider, but Roy Scheider was signed up to do it. The rest of the cast, I think, genuinely was who Shemina wanted. I mean, they, I did, Joanne did tell me who they had seen for some of the other parts. Well, I know for Nick, they considered, for the um, Christopher Walken part, they considered Richard Gere. That's right. And I think Jeff Bridges, yes. But they didn't offer it to Richard Gere or Jeff Bridges. Mm. They offered it to Christopher Walken. So in that mm. sense, they did get who they wanted. True. And in fact, in, in Heaven's Gate, he wanted Chris Christopherson, who wasn't the only person he offered. Well, of course, it was meant to be Steve McQueen originally, but that was in various 
earlier drafts and lives of the right. movie. So the rest of the casting, I mean, like if you go forward, I think Heaven's Gate genuinely was the cast he wanted. Um, I mean, nobody will ever convince me that Tremino really wanted Anthony Hopkins in Desperate Hours. Mm. He's so miscast. <laughs> I mean, he, the, the character is, uh, you know, late 30s, chaser of the American dream. Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> well, isn't it kind of jarring when Mickey Rourke appears three quarters of the way through Heaven's Gate to you? I mean, he does not read like an 1800s. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, at least in at least in Year of the Dragon, he's somewhat period appropriate, even though they have a horrible dye job on his hair, and he's at least fifteen yes, exactly, to twenty years too exactly. long for this yeah, this world weary, yeah. you know, forties detective yes. who is actually twenty four or twenty six years old or something. Yes, I think in the end, what's what I wanted to sort of leave on with your book is this sense that you really accurately convey that you know often. It's the creative person who is ground up as grist for the mill of Hollywood. And I think Chimino's defensive position against the studio, against the suits as he perceived them, the use of Joanne Corelli as a gatekeeper, these are all understandable within the context of Hollywood. Absolutely. But it's hard to read the book and not feel like, Michael, like you have to go along to get along. And he had... Later in life, when we read interviews with him or see him, obviously he he physically, you know, came to resemble not at all the person he was no, in his youth. No. In his youth, if you were casting a biopic of Michael Cimino, you would probably cast like a John Lovitz to play him. He looks very much yeah. like John Lovitz. Yeah. Um, or if you were going to be more generous, you'd say Al Pacino or Sylvester Stallone. If you were going to be more John, generous, John yes. Lovitz. Yes. Who wants John Lovitz to play them in a movie? Well, you know, John Lovitz could. I bet John Lovitz could do a pretty good job, actually. Oh, if they ever oh. did, if they were, if they make a film of your book, yeah. the late. Well, he would see. That's the problem: is late life Trumino yeah, is yeah. unrecognizable. Um, yes. Yet he did become more voluble later on in life. Like even in that Hollywood Reporter long form piece, which ostensibly was an interview to do about Clint Eastwood, which is the only reason he agreed to do it. He's so effusive uh, in praise for Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And it's so genuine. And he spends a lot of time in that piece apologizing for not mentioning Clint Eastwood when he accepted his best best director Oscar, which man, your book sent me to look for those video clips because they are so weird. Michael Dealey, and Barry Spikings going up with Chimino, when you read your book and you understand the depth of uh, dislike that existed at that point in yeah, the relationship, yeah. both between Spikings and Dealey, who I gather had a falling out. Yeah, they did, yeah. And between Ch- Chimino and them, it yeah. is so awkward to watch. And again, John Wayne, he's the guy on stage presenting these yeah. awards in such a fascinating through line. It's so awkward to watch them. They, they don't yeah. seem to be having much fun. And here they are no. at the Academy Awards, right? And the winner is the Deer Hunter.
One more. Oh, he isn't there. I love you madly. Thank you. Thank you to all the people who made the movie, and thank you very much for your kindness and generosity. I can only add to that thanks to two people, one who helped us in the beginning, who was Bobby Littman, and one who helped us towards the end when we started the production, which was Harry Upland. Thank you very much. And it's fascinating to look. There's a little snippet of, jo- of Joanne Corelli uh, just before Chimino yeah. comes up to accept that second award. You see her, which this, of course, I'm, I'm making this up in my mind. I think you note in your book, um, she goes to touch him but he walks past her en route to the yeah. stage, which yeah. is such a fascinating gesture yeah. to me. She doesn't get up out of her chair. She's wearing this beautiful white gown and she kind of goes to touch him on his back as he's, as he's walking by yeah. her, but he's just kind of focused on the stage. Yeah. Probably reading so more into love, it, but it's a fascinating moment. What I loved, you know, their confidence, Corelli and Cimino's confidence, you know, and when, you know what the Oscars are like, that thing where you have like little, mm-hmm thing of the six people up for yes. it. <laughs> and the one that wins it does a wonderful kind of, oh, can this be me? <laughs> and Chimino doesn't do that he at doesn't all. doesn't do that. It's as, if it, it's as if it's his due that he's got the, got the Oscar. How about Alan Parker's reaction when he loses? Is sort of refreshingly, brilliantly pissed off, right? He's sort of... Well, Alan Parker's like that, but of course most people have to do, do an awful kind of rictus grin. Yeah, he doesn't do that. <laughs> He just looks upset that he lost, which I think I I applaud his truthfulness in there. And in the spirit of this wonderful new cinema of the future, we're very, very honored to announce the nominees for the Best Director of 1979. Hal Ashby for Coming Home. Michael Cimino for The Deer Hunter. Warren Beatty and Buck Henry for Heaven Can Wait. Woody Allen for Interiors. Alan Parker for Midnight Express. The winner is... Francis, you're the director. My colleague and paisan, Michael Cimino, for the Deer Hunter. this it's difficult to leaven pride with humility but I am proud to be here and proud of our work proud to be part of this tradition I'm proud of my dear very special associates Joanne Corelli Barry Spikings Chris Walken, John Savage, Meryl Streep, 
the late John Casale, and most especially, I embrace Robert De Niro for his dedication and for his great dignity of heart. Thank you very much. But in, in just in terms of, of Chimino's attitude, what I always found impressive, self-destructive, but impressive, was the thing which nobody has really gone into is the stuff about Footloose, <laughs> um, which he was offered after yeah. um, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. And as I say in the book, you know, there's a big advantage to fallen directors, pariah directors. Mm -hmm. They're so desperate to work again. They're malleable. They're certainly a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. um, and they behave themselves. <laughs> uh, not Tremino at all. He waltzes into Footloose and behaves as badly. Let's get rid of all this music and dancing and frivolity out of Footloose, right? Yeah. That's his first. Yeah. yeah brilliant. And, and so he, he, but of course... He acts as if he has all the cards in his hand. Right. And by the time of Footloose, he had no cards in his hand, but he still behaved as if he did. Mm -hmm. And I've always found that impressive, that he wasn't about to take any shit from anybody, even though not taking any shit from anybody sort of destroyed his career. Yeah. I mean, you have to take shit. You have to eat shit. I know so many people yeah. who are incredible actors, but they can't do that part of the game. They can't pretend yeah. to think people are smart who they don't think are smart. They can't yeah. pretend yeah. to be excited yeah. about work that they think is beneath yeah. them. And you can't blame them for that because that yeah. is part of the business that we're in is yeah. you have to sometimes eat shit. And I think, yeah. you know, to his credit, he seemed unable to do that later in his life to talk about late period Chimino, the last say 20 years of his life or so he's undergoing this physical transformation and he's, as I said, more voluble when reached about his career, but still very pointedly, not even defensive about it, but declarative yeah. about it. Like I think the Hollywood Reporter interview says, well, doesn't it feel good now that people are, are finally watching Heaven's Gate and, and standing and applauding? Or, don't you feel vindicated? And he's like, vindicated? No. Like for him, there, there always was a great movie. There always was a great movie. Just because you're figuring that out now, he doesn't put any stock in that. Yeah. Which is, I, I mean, I admire him. You have in to admire that. Ways. <laughs> and of course, he did later. He was before in his early life or, or to middle age. He was spiky and difficult and he didn't play that Hollywood game. He was never charming to anybody. He never schmoozed anybody. And Coppola, you know, is a great, big, expansive. Sure. Teddy bear, bearded. Let's have dinner. Let's drink you know, wine. Let's, come to the vineyard. And he comes out and he's wearing an apron with, <laughs> you know, spaghetti, spaghetti sauce. sauce stains. <laughs> and, you know, he gets the press and there's a huge trestle mm -hmm. table in the Napa Valley. Chimino just couldn't do that. Yeah. That's why people cut Coppola so much slack because yeah. he's a real, I mean, he's probably putting it all on, but he can be super charming. Yeah. Um, and Chimino just couldn't do that. But with his, I mean, I don't want to sound like a kind of five and dime psychologist, but with the changes mm. in his whatever, mm -hmm. um, he did become a warmer and nicer person. Mm. You know, maybe maybe it speaks to we're living in this moment. There's so many issues of identity. And, sure. you know, maybe you'd have to say for him, 
it was a journey for him to become who he wanted to be. And as he became yeah, that person, was. he was more comfortable in his skin. Because yeah. clearly, if you look at all the history, I'm sorry, you don't put lifts in your shoes. You don't undergo plastic surgery. You don't eradicate the reality of your background and existence without yeah. being in conflict to those things. No. And as I say, in, in, you know, facelifts mm -hmm. are done to make yourself look younger and better. Mm -hmm. They're not there to make you look like somebody completely different, mm. even though sometimes if you have a bad facelift, right. it does make you look like, but that's not their intention. Whereas clearly his intention was to be a different person. Mm -hmm. And why do you think, it's always fascinating to me when you have these filmmakers, you make a film like The Deer Hunter, and for all the reasons that you can look at Heaven's Gate and understand where it went awry, uh, you can look at The Deer Hunter and just marvel that it came together uh, under similarly challenging circumstances, although it was, you know, a, a, a less, it was a, it was less of a boondoggle than Heaven's Gate turned out to yeah, be for United yeah. Artists. Why can we say, well, you know, there's, there is a lot more reliance on screenwriters and other collaborators. It's a collaborative medium. I mean, it's a director's medium. Sure. I get that, but he's uncharitable to writers. He's uncharitable to Vilmo Zygmunt for crying out loud. Um, he calls him a camera operator. Um, I laughed last night when I was watching Year of the Dragon. The DP credit in Year of the Dragon, and this has to come from Chimino, it says uh, something like cinematography and operator. <laughs> and it's the name of the, the cinematographer. Like, yeah. I wonder if Chimino made, made the credit say operator because he, he liked yeah. to, to say that they're just camera operators when, of course, there's yeah. so much more to yeah. it than that. So. Why didn't he, why wasn't he able to make a film as cohesive again as Deer Hunter? Um, is it really just that rare of a thing to be able to do over and over again? Well, I, I mean, I think you, you can argue that all great artists, writers, directors, whatever, they have their moment in the sun, mm -hmm. but the sun goes down, you know, and you can think, I mean, there are too many, I mean, Painters, Picasso again, I don't think it happened to Picasso, but Philip Roth's later novels, I know some people like them. I thought they were terrible. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, Letting Go and Portnoy's Complaints and American Pastoral are just truly great novels. Francis Ford Coppola's late movies. When was the last time you saw a good Francis Ford Coppola movie? I love The Rainmaker. But the rainmaker was like work for hire. That's work for hire, yes. But it's. I mean, it was it was beautifully done. But yeah. I wouldn't call it a great Coppola movie. No, no, it's not. It's a, a it's fun not a, movie. No, yeah. And when was the last time you saw a good Brian De Palma movie? I love Brian De Palma. Yeah, I long to see a good Brian De Palma movie, but I can't think when the last yeah. good one was. They go off. Mm -hmm. I think Chimino, in a sense, he was forced out of it because of Heaven's Gate. But I was all, you know, with those last, uh, leave Year of the Dragon aside, because some people think it's a great movie. Sun Chaser, Desperate Hours, The Sicilian. Now, there's nothing wrong with the material. Mm -hmm. I mean, The Sicilian is a schlocky Mario Puzo novel, mm -hmm. but then so is The Godfather. Right. Desperate Hours had been a stage play with Paul Newman, a movie, William Wyler movie, it was a novel first, then turned into a Broadway play, then turned into the William Wyler movie. There's nothing wrong with the material. Mm -hmm. The Sicilian is a best-selling novel. 
Um, Sun Chaser, you know, you can see if you told somebody the story, you know, like disenchanted, cynical surgeon teams up with terminally ill. You know, it's a movie. Yes, it's a movie. It sounds good. But there was something about those movies. He couldn't operate without total control. And, you know, they're, they're not good, those later movies. And I've, I, I've often wondered why, because it's like some people can do it. I mean, like I mentioned in the book, Orson Welles' Touch of Evil is schlocky, at least the script, the original script, it's schlocky, genre, low budget, Orson Welles turned it into an Orson Welles almost masterpiece. He could do it when he felt like it. Chimino couldn't do it. He needed the oxygen of pure control. And I think actually, though again, this is, you know, dime store psychology. I think with his gender dysphoria, which may or may not be the word I mean, um, he lost confidence. I think, as I say in the book, he lost confidence in the power of masculinity and Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Heaven's Gate, dear, and all about masculinity. That was what he was interested in, is how you become a man, what rites of passage you go through. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on and having this chat. We could talk for hours and hours, but I don't yeah. want to take too much of your time. I really, really, really appreciated and loved your book. Uh, I encourage all the listeners to, to go and get it. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's it'll it'll inspire you to do some rewatches of some very interesting and fascinating yeah. movies. And and I think for me, I don't know how you were left finishing the project. For me, I felt warmly towards Michael Cimino, someone who I if I thought about him before, I thought about him as some tortured, egomaniacal, self-destructive kind of would-be genius. And although there there is that part of him. Of course there is. I think at the end of your book, a reader will feel humanly towards this person who had whatever ability or inability he had to plumb his own life and story. And I think such a fascinating cast of characters surrounding him. It is, it plays like a movie. I think it would be a much better uh, miniseries than the forthcoming Making of the Godfather yeah. <laughs> you know, which is just destined to not be good. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, but No, I mean, that is, that is, <laughs> I suppose if I hoped for anything, but of course you don't write a book hoping, mm-hmm. you just, you just try to get through writing the book. No, I love doing it. Is that there will be his humanity taken into account along with his megalomania, yeah. nastiness, whatever. He, I, 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 I was moved by it actually by the, his strange trajectory. Mm-hmm. And it is sympathetic. I don't think Joanne Corelli will think it's sympathetic. I haven't heard from her, um, and I probably won't. It, it is sympathetic. It is. At least I hope it is, and I meant it to be. Oh, I think, it, I, believe... I think it absolutely is sympathetic. Yeah. I, think it treats, I think it treats the part of his life and career that any of us would want that part of our life and career treated with the sensitivity that you do and with yeah. the care that you take to put people in perspective. You don't say this person who encountered Michael late in his life, who 
you know, claims that she is the person who helped fit him for women's clothing or other aspects of, you don't say in the book, you know, this is the truth. This person is, uh, is, is believable per se. You just present them as you find them and you allow their humanity to speak for themselves. I think you've done that for a lot of interesting and uh, really well, thank interesting character. I mean, like Joanne Corelli is one of the more interesting Hollywood characters. And I'd yeah. never really heard of her before your book. And I also, I'm, I'm left sort of appreciating her lack of like forthcomingness, which is so yeah. rare in this industry that you have to almost stand back and admire it. So I think yeah. you really, really uh, wrote a great book. I mean, actually a screen, a screenwriter, David Freeman, who I talked to, who was at college with Janino, um, he said to me, you know, your problem is she's more interesting than he is. <laughs> well, what's, what's, what's amazing about your book is you sort of picked a subject where anyone would say in the beginning, well, there's, why? well, there's nothing. How are you going to get anything? Um, but that's no, exactly why no. it's a worthwhile book. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. kudos to you, Charles. I really appreciated our conversation. Okay. Listen, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Talk to you soon. So Bye-bye. Long. 